Right. Well, that's a good song. He is able to deliver thee. We're going to be in 1 Samuel tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 18. The book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. We finished up our series last week. In two weeks, we're going to start another series entitled Avoiding Confusion. And we're going to do that one on Wednesday nights. And I'll talk about that just a little bit later. So that, that'll be in two weeks uh, from, uh, from tonight. But tonight, we're going to kind of take a break from the series. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1 tonight. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, and beginning in verse number 1, the Word of God says that it came to pass when he, David, had made an end of speaking unto Saul, this is right after he killed Goliath, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that, Lord, you'd be with the service tonight. Father, give us understanding. I pray, dear Lord, that you would open this up to us and cause us to see what you have for us tonight. And Lord God, as we see what you have for us, may we be willing, dear Lord God, to uh, follow it, to apply it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can go ahead and be seated. You know, it has always intrigued me how that two people can come from the same exact family, can come from the same exact home, and yet uh, be polar opposites of each other, the way that they approach things, the way that they look at things. And that's, that's where we are when it comes to, uh, to Saul and to Jonathan. And as we look here, the, of course, uh, by this time, David has already been anointed to be the next king by God's prophet Samuel. That happened when he was very young. And so we know, because the Word of God reveals to us, that David's going to be the next king of Israel. I'm not exactly sure when Jonathan found out, but Jonathan understood this also, and even said as much uh, later on, and he accepted that. I think probably Saul also knew it, but didn't accept it. You know, not only had uh, he been anointed, uh, but overnight David now has become a household name in Israel by slaying the giant Goliath and, of course, freeing Israel from that tyrant. Though Jonathan's heart would be knit to David, Jonathan's father, King Saul, would have a less favorable relationship with the future king. Oh, it starts out good and well. They seem to start out with the, with, w- w- on the same road, on the same path. But as we're going to look, they actually even started on different paths. Of course, we know what happens. Saul goes the complete opposite to the point where David becomes enemy number one. Saul spends much of the rest of his life trying to kill uh, David and, and chasing David down, whereas Jonathan's heart would be knit to David. Jonathan's father, on the other hand, as I said, would not have that same relationship. Though it seemed like a good idea at the time. Saul would regret bringing David home with him. The Bible tells us here that Saul uh, brought him home. Verse number 2 Saul took him home that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. This would be something that Saul would inevitably regret. Not because David was a bad thing to take home, but because uh, Saul was not willing to make the sacrifices that were required when bringing David home. I said it seemed like a good idea at the time. But Saul would regret this and would eventually drive David out of the palace and mark him as enemy number one in Israel. Now Saul felt that the cost of this relationship with David was just too much. And uh, of course we see the cost right away in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and uh, verse number 6 here, just a few uh, verses later, 1 Samuel 18 verse number 6. 
the Bible says that it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabarets with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? Now in Galatians chapter 2 verse number 20. Paul writes this, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Now there's a statement right there. Saul understood that following Christ meant that he had to crucify the flesh, that he had to mortify the flesh. And, and of course, that would not be the only cost, but that would be a great cost. But uh, the apostle Paul was also able to see the benefit of that cost. He says, I am crucified with Christ, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, without going into all of the details of what it means to mortify the flesh and and crucify the flesh so that we can live according to the Spirit, basically what it means is the flesh is going to have to give some things up. When we choose to live for Christ, when we choose to bring Christ home and make Christ king in our lives, there is a cost to us. Now, I almost hesitate to say that because when you weigh the benefits with the cost, there really is no cost at all. It's almost like taking your money and then investing in something, and then you have that initial loss, but if what you get is a a thousand percent return on that initial investment, well, then that really isn't a loss at at all. Immediately, it may seem like a loss, and if someone says, well, you know, you have a hundred thousand dollars, and boy, you, you, um, you uh, give that $100,000 or you invest that $100,000 and it won't be long at all before you have a million dollars. I mean, that would be a pretty good investment. Um, But it's that initial cost. It's that initial sticker shock. And I think with a lot of people who bring Christ home, that's quite a shock to them that, what do you mean? I have to sacrifice the flesh mortify the flesh no longer am i to live for me i'm to live solely for jesus christ uh he is to increase and i am to decrease paul said i'm crucified with christ oh but after that initial investment nevertheless i live now as far as our salvation goes jesus paid the price for that we don't pay the price for salvation But there is a price to pay for godly living if you want to reap the benefits of living for Christ. So getting back to King Saul, I believe he's a great example of how not to have a relationship with the future king, Jesus Christ. Now to us, Jesus is already the king, but speaking in terms of the world, Jesus is the future king. He's coming back and he's going to reign. And we know that and we believe it. But as far as uh, this relationship here, David was already anointed king. So to a lot of people, he would already be king. But in worldly terms, he was not sitting on the throne there in Israel, but he would be one day. Jonathan understood that King Saul did not want to accept that. And so the cost was too great. Saul's son gives us an example of how to have a great relationship with the future king. So there are numerous differences between Saul's approach and Jonathan's approach. And I honestly believe that King Saul pictures the majority of Christianity today in their approach to Christ. Whereas Jonathan, he pictures a minority in Christianity today and his approach to Christ. So I want you to look tonight at three 
three ways in which their approach differed as far as their relationship with David, the future king. Uh, their first, uh, the first way in which the relationship differed, Saul was impressed with David, but Jonathan was in love with David. You know, there's a huge difference there. Some people, many people are impressed with Jesus, but very few Christians actually live like they love Jesus. As a matter of fact, the title of my message tonight is Commitment and Convenience. Commitment and Convenience. Many of us approach Christianity as convenience, where very few people approach Christianity as a commitment. And so Saul was impressed with David, number one. Jonathan was in love with David. And there is a huge, huge difference. Saul's was a temporal attraction. He was obviously in awe of David. Let's go ahead and and back up and... um, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and in verse number 55. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 55. Now, this was after David was the only one that would stand up to to the Goliath, to the giant. He wrought a great victory in Israel that day. Remember, the contest was this, winner take all. And so David went out there and he fought Goliath. He killed Goliath. And then as a result, Israel had a great victory that day. And so 1 Samuel chapter 17, and in verse number 55, And when Saul saw David, and I think that there says it all. He's not looking through the eyes of faith, he's looking through the eyes of sight, and he's very impressed. Man, I just saw this, this uh, strapping 17-year-old go out and whip a 9-foot, nine 9-inch nine giant, almost 10 feet tall. That's impressive. Can I say this? There's nothing wrong with being impressed with God. We ought to be impressed with God. Nothing wrong with being impressed with our Savior. We should be impressed with our Savior. But if our attachment is just an emotional impression, that is not going to carry us to the sacrifices that are required in the Christian life. And so Saul saw, when the Bible says he saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, his general, if you will, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. You know, the interesting thing is, David had been employed by Saul. David was the one who would play the harp every time the evil spirit would have come upon him. It just goes to show how aloof Saul had been and how we, how, how, Uh, I guess you could say he had this elitist attitude. David was a servant. He wasn't even worth getting to know. I mean, he just was the guy who would play the harp whenever the evil spirit came upon him, and he'd make me feel better. Well, that was his job. And, And so Saul didn't even know who David was. I mean, he knew who he was, but he didn't know much about him. Just goes to show how self-centered he is. Listen, this is a good lesson for us. Uh, Get to know people who serve with you. Get to know people who who live with you. Get to know people that you fellowship with. I think it's important that as fellow church members, we know one another. We know how to pray for one another. And I know that as a church gets bigger, that gets harder and harder to do. But I think we ought to make an effort to get to know those around us. King Saul shows us how self-centered we can be to the point that this, this kid had been employed by him already for quite some time. And he didn't even know who his dad was. Didn't even know what family he came from. Probably didn't even know what tribe he had come from. And Abner, he didn't know. Verse number 56, And the king said, Inquire thou whose son this stripling is. And David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, and Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Boy, there's an impressive sight for a king. And the Bible says in verse number 58, 
And Saul said to him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And I wonder if Saul even heard it. He was just, he was so impressed. But it was a temporal attraction. Uh, Saul was obviously in awe of David and could think of nothing but future possibilities. Man, if, if I have him in my armor or in my army, my, what, what possibilities, what this guy can do for me. By the way, that's the way a lot of people approach relationships and marriage. And then when they learn, oh my, in this marriage... I have to sacrifice. I married this individual because of all of the benefits that I saw and all the things this individual could do for me and all the feelings this individual gave me. And now all of a sudden, all those feelings are gone. Yeah, because reality has set in. And rather than a a, a commitment, it was just all about convenience. It was a temporal attraction. And Saul isn't unlike many Christians who want signs and benefits and entertainment. And then when all those things are not available, there's no commitment. In Matthew chapter 12, verse number 38, the Bible says that a certain scribe, of the Pharisees uh, answered and, and said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. So this is what they wanted. They wanted a sign. Uh, we, want, we want a reason to be in awe. But as we learned in Isaiah chapter 53, there was nothing about him, no comeliness, nothing that we should desire him. Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, it was going to be out of commitment and out of love. And 11 of those 12 apostles, they had that. Oh, even though they fell over and over and over again. But thank God he's merciful. We all fall. But to the, but to, uh, the credit of those apostles, they got back up again. And we see them serving the one that they love. In Luke chapter 23, verse number 7, the Bible says, And as soon as he knew that he belonged into Herod's jurisdiction, this is during his trial, and Pilate found out that Herod was actually in uh, Jerusalem, the Bible says that Pilate uh, gave him to Herod to judge. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. Man, he was excited, but for all the wrong reasons. Again, the Bible says he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him. And he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. And this is the approach a lot of people have toward, toward Jesus. Man, how can he benefit me? What can he do for me? Honestly, if Jesus has saved you... And this is a Wednesday night crowd, and so I'm going to assume you know Christ is your personal Savior. If you are saved, you've received more from Him than you've ever deserved. We all have. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for us, that He was buried, that He rose again, that He left heaven to live here with us and live among us, that he came unto his, his own, that he came into the world and the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own received him not. And that he was a man of, of sorrow. And we, uh, we didn't regard him at all. But he's done a lot for us. All that so he could save us. Really, we have no business expecting any more, but by his grace and his mercy, he promises more if we live for him. He says, if you'll love me, keep my commandments. And here's the thing about keeping the commandments of Jesus. They benefit us. But to keep rules, to keep commandments, to stay in line, to walk the narrow way, there's a cost. Just like if you want to be a winning athlete, there's benefits to being a winning athlete. There's benefits to being on a winning team. Huge benefits. But there are things you have to give up if you're going to be a winner. 
You're going to have to give up some free time so you can practice. You're going to have to give up some sweets and and things of that nature so you can be on a strict regimen, a strict diet. And really, the Bible compares Christianity to a race, to an athletic event. There are some things that we're just going to have to sacrifice, things we're going to have to give up if we want to be winners in Christianity. And boy... Those things that you give up cannot compare to what God gives us at the, at the end of the race or even during the race while we're running the race. Um, in John chapter 6, verse number 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, because you, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. And so Jesus says, don't follow me to see how it benefits you. Instead, follow me for spiritual reasons, for that spiritual meat, for the things maybe you'll not necessarily receive here and now, or even understand but will benefit you in eternity. Hey, if the apostles were in it for the benefits, they all got robbed (laughs) because they all died martyrs' deaths. Listen to how uh, the apostle Paul um, describes them in 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 9. He says this to the apostles. He says, For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last as it were appointed to death, what kind of deaths did they die? John died of old age. That was it. The rest of them died early, and they began to die often, starting with James. James didn't, didn't see many of the things that happened. He died in the beginning of the book of Acts. And then they were picked off one by one after that. And so Paul says, uh, appointed to death, we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, Uh, but ye are wise in Christ. Of course, and he's talking to the modernist teachers there in uh, in the church of Corinth, uh, who are being lifted up, even though they're teaching false doctrine. One of the false doctrines they were teaching was that there was no resurrection, and they're being lifted up, and they're being hailed for such false doctrines. And, and, and Paul says, those of us who adhere to God's doctrine, to Jesus' doctrine, we're, st- we're being ridiculed for it. He says, we are weak. But mockingly, he says, you're strong. People lift you up. You're honorable. We are despised. Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. So this is what he says. This is what we get for standing for the truth. We don't even know where our next meal is coming from. Meanwhile, you false teachers are being wined and dined and paid well, and lifted up by man. Tell me that we're not headed in that direction in Christianity today. My, the, the false teachers, the worldly teachers, they are getting propped, and, and they are getting lifted up, and they are doing very well financially. And, and as far as the, uh, the worldly churches go... They don't have to struggle for facilities and things of that nature. Whereas we wonder, are we going to pay our bills next month? And we know that we are. But this is what what the apostle is talking about. He says, we are both hunger and thirst, are naked, are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Oh, watch those teachers 
who are appealing to the masses and ask yourself why. Why are they appealing to the masses? He says, I write, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. I warn you. Only thinking about the benefits, Saul jumped right into this relationship. Wow. Look at this stripling, he says. Look at this young man. My, I could mold him. And boy, the benefits. Ah, but what he didn't know, he was bringing home the godly anointed king of Israel. When you jump into any relationship or situation with only the benefit in mind, only the, the temporal things, the physical things, the emotional things, and you don't pray about these relationships, and you don't weigh these relationships, you're going to be gravely disappointed. We've all seen it. Many children see that puppy. When I was a kid, you'd see them in the you'd see them in a window because there used to be pet stores where you could actually buy puppies. You can't do that anymore. And you could actually go to a pet store and buy a puppy for say 50 bucks. You can't do that anymore. No, now you got to go through some breeder and you've got to adopt the dog and you got to pay thousands of dollars for these things. But nonetheless, kids see that puppy and they want that puppy. They fall in love with that puppy. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. Oh, look at how cute that puppy is. Well, guess what? First of all, that cute puppy is a devil in disguise. You know, I, I read a sign the other day. Maybe you went by it there on Cornell by the uh, vet there where it said that dogs prepare us for kids and cats prepare us for teenagers. <laughs> and how true that is. If you know anything about cats, they're aloof. They don't listen to you. They do whatever they want to, just like a teenager. Uh, dogs, on the other hand, man, they're like little kids. They're into everything, everywhere. And yet, uh, you'll try to tell your kids now, hey, this dog is a huge responsibility. You got to feed this dog. Oh, I don't care. I want to, I'll feed him every day. You got to walk this dog. Oh, I don't care. Look at how cute that dog is. I want that dog. I'll walk this dog every day. You got to groom this dog. You got to bathe this dog. You got to clean up after this dog. And, and, and they talk you into it. And you bring the dog home, and who ends up taking care of the dog? Mom or dad, or both. And because it doesn't take long before you say, hey, you got to feed that dog. Oh, I'm so tired of that dog. That dog's barking. Go take the dog outside. Oh, I hate that dog. And it doesn't take very long before they realize I jumped into this relationship for all the wrong reasons. Sadly, a lot of people jump into marriage for the same reasons. Um, all the ways this individual can benefit me. Often shocked. It requires, it requires loving. It requires sacrifice. And for many, the cost is too great. They simply don't love that dog any, <laughs> anymore. And... Um, as a result, well, the dog suffers. You know, whether it's a marriage or a job, there's a price to pay for benefits. You get a job for the benefits. You got to weigh the cost of that job also. Get a job just because it pays more. Well, generally, more pay also means more responsibility, sometimes less time at home. All these things have to be weighed. Saul brought David home because he was infatuated, not because he loved David. And then when he brought David home immediately, he realized for himself, boy, this is going to cost me. And I'm not willing to pay that price. We can see what he says to himself in verse number 8. He says, the Bible says he was very wroth. The saying displeased him. The saying uh, that, that the... 
women said, the songs that they were singing, David hath, Saul hath killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Jonathan, on the other hand, his was not uh, a temporal attraction. His was actually a dedicated response. Getting back to 1 Samuel chapter 18 now, verse number 1. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse number 1. Saul didn't even know who anything about David. But in uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse number 1, it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. Jonathan loved, loved him as his own soul. So whereas Saul was infatuated and didn't even know anything about David, the Bible tells us that Jonathan listened. When Saul came to David and said, I want to know who, who you are, who your parents are, tell me a little bit about you. And by the time Jonathan heard everything about David, Jonathan actually listened. He learned about him. And so what we see here is that one was infatuated with what he saw. The other was dedicated because of the word that he observed and that he heard. Jonathan didn't react to David's impressive sign, holding the giant's head in his hand, leaving a bloody trail behind him. That was impressive to King Saul. That was not what impressed Jonathan. What impressed Jonathan was when he got to know David and when he heard David's response. Many today are in love with the so-called benefits, entertainment, programs of Christianity. When all is said and done, only the Word of God is what matters, for that is where you find the person of God. In most countries of the world, the Word of God is all they have. They're forced to meet minimal conditions. They're forced to assemble, sometimes in secrecy. They don't have time for the rock bands, and, and much like what the, the apostles had, had to deal with. And It's amazing to me how people fell in love with the Word of God, how dedicated they were to the Word of God, and how willing they were to die for the word of God. You know why? Because that's all they had. They didn't have the facilities. They didn't have the air conditioning. They didn't have all the amenities that American Christians have today. They didn't have the rock bands and they didn't have the praise bands and and they didn't have the fellowships and they didn't have the entertainment. All they had was the word of God. And you know, as I study the scriptures, you know what I have found? That the word of God is enough. That's all that they needed. They learned about God and they heard about God and they, they, they followed God. And they followed him oftentimes right to their grave. All the apostles did. Many of the pastors did. And even in the New Testament, we read about churches changing pastors constantly, not because they left, but because they were dragged out, hauled off, taken into prison, and then killed, and someone else had to take their place. But they did not have all the amenities. Oftentimes, they didn't even have a building. They met in someone's house. And yet today, it's not a real church unless you have a building and a steeple, unless you have the programs, unless you have this, and unless you have that. Let's not forget what Jesus said to the scribe who wanted to follow him in Matthew chapter 8. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 8, verse number 19, that a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus, knowing all things, however, knew this scribe had a pretty cushy position, uh, like all the scribes in the Sanhedrin, got paid pretty well, was very, was uh, highly thought of, had all of his, uh, had all of his needs met, and, and many of his desires and many of his wants. 
And so when he said, I want to follow you wherever you go, Jesus essentially said, are you sure about that? You sure you want to follow me? Because he said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. So think about it before you decide, I want to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Don't fall in love with the amenities because there may not be very many. Don't fall in love with the programs because it's just preaching the gospel. And if that's enough for you, then come along. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. When your church features preaching today, that's considered foolish. It's considered old. That's how they did it a hundred years ago. You can't do it that way today. Well, I think the Word of God is the same today as it was a hundred years ago. I think it's just as powerful today as it was a hundred years ago. The problem is we're not in love with it like they were maybe a hundred years ago. Jonathan didn't possess an impression that changed with circumstances. Jonathan had a true love for David, and that's the ultimate motivation. Jonathan's soul was bound to the soul of David. That's what the word knit means. Bound. He made a commitment. I'm committed to him. That we would be bound to Christ in the way in which he has made himself bound to us. Here's the thing about Jesus. When you invite him into your life as your Savior, he can't leave. Though there are probably times he'd like to. But he's, he's sealed us unto the day of redemption. The Bible tells us that he gives us his spirit. And that spirit dwells within us. And we are sealed by that spirit. He can't leave. And thank God for that. Oh, that we'd be bound to him the way he's bound to us. Jonathan loved David as his own soul, and there's no greater commitment that can be made. David put his life on the line for Jonathan and all Israel, just as Christ did for us. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love hath no man than this, that, uh, or greater, hereby perceive we the love of God. I'm sorry, wrong verse. Um, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In John fifteen thirteen, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so commitment is what God wants. He wants us to be committed to him as well as being committed to one another. And that was how uh, Jonathan was. Oh, it was not an infatuation, a temporal infatuation. He was bound, he was committed by a real love. But the second difference between Saul and Jonathan, Saul wanted David to do for him. Jonathan wanted to do for David. Saul wanted David to do for him. You know, a lot of people, their service is contingent upon what God's doing for them right then and right there. Which is why things aren't going right, they're out of church. Things aren't going right, and they're, uh, they're, they're not faithful anymore. Because it's about what God can do for me. We, we kind of have this backwards in that we think that God's supposed to be our servant, And when he doesn't do things our way, we begin to question him. We begin to accuse him. We get upset with him. And, well, fine, if that's the way it's going to be, why should I go to church anymore? What good does it do? I mean, I've done everything I'm supposed to. Job certainly did not have that approach. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who am I to say anything else other than blessed be the name of the Lord? But Saul wanted David 
to make Saul look good. Jonathan wanted to make David look good. Once again, look at the difference here. As we look at, at, at Saul, we can see his motivation. Man, I'm going to bring this guy home. I'm going to, I'm going to mentor him. He's going to become a great general, and he's going to bring us victory, and I'm going to get the credit, and we are just going to, we're going to uh, amass a bunch of wealth together. And then in verse number 7 of 1 Samuel 18, the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul says, wait a minute, this isn't working out the way it was supposed to. David's not making me look good. David's looking good. And he's looking good in the eyes of the people. And he's getting the credit. And here's the thing about David. David didn't want the credit. He gave the credit to God. But as a type of Christ, David's getting the credit. He's the one who went out. He's the one when the giant came, everyone else fled, including King Saul himself, who also was a soldier. David went out. David put his life on the line. David won the victory. David came home. Hey, you see a correlation here? When things start going as, they, as, as we want them in our lives, shouldn't God get the glory? Shouldn't God get the credit? Hey, when we raise kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by the grace of God, they go out and, 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 and make us look good as parents, shouldn't God get the credit? Shouldn't he get the glory? Shouldn't he get the honor? My, when a church uh, begins to accomplish things and see lives changed and souls won and people saved, shouldn't God get the glory? Shouldn't God get the credit? Saul wanted David to make Saul look good. Jonathan, on the other hand, wanted to make David look good. Look at the difference here. The Bible tells us in verse number 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 18. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he, Jonathan, loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him. And by the way, these would have been royal garments. Remember, he was a prince. He was next in line to be the king. And he took those next in line clothes off. He gave them to David, had David put them on, and he gave him his sword, he gave him his bow, he gave him his girdle. And now, Jonathan, for lack of a better word, is stripped, and David looks pretty good. David's wearing these royal garments. David's got a sword. David's got a bow. David's got the girdle. So as you see these two individuals, Saul, uh, Jonathan is stripped, and, and, and David looks pretty good, where on the other hand, it was, it was the opposite. But that was Jonathan's heart. And you could, you could hear David saying, no, I, I can't take this. I insist it's yours. And then as he hands him his sword, I really can't take your sword. This is your sword. No, I insist it's yours. And, and your bow too? I mean, this has to be an heirloom. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. And so here, Jonathan, is. we can, we can see a picture of I am crucified. I am stripped and I give it all to David. Or we give it all to Christ. Saul wanted David to do for him. Jonathan wanted to do for David. And how is your relationship with God? Are we all about God doing for us? Or are we all about doing for God, even if it strips us? 
even if it alters the way in which we have to live. And then number three, Saul quit serving David at the first hint of personal sacrifice. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 here, verse number 2, the Bible says Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. So in other words, Saul says, come on, David, you're coming home with me. You're going to eat at my table. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to make sure that you have everything that you need, that you have everything that you want. I'm not even going to let you go home anymore. So in essence, Saul says, I'm going to serve you the way that a father would serve his children. I'm going to sacrifice for you. Oh, until the sacrifice became sacrifice. So Saul quit serving David at the first hint of personal sacrifice because in Saul's mind, I can pay for all this for David. I I can pay servants to take care of him. I can pay servants to feed him. I can pay servants. I, I can just write a check and it'll be done. A lot of Christians have no problem writing a check for the offering plate. But when it comes to sacrificing time, when it comes to volunteering, when it, comes, uh, when, it, when it becomes personal sacrifice, oh man, that's just asking a little bit too much. Man, all this church wants is my time. And, and all this church wants is, is to take and take and take. So Saul quit serving David at the first hint of personal sacrifice. Jonathan continued serving in spite of sacrifice. And you know, what's interesting is Jonathan sacrificed a whole lot more than his dad ever did, and he continued to do so. For Saul, there was a price. That price was met in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and in verse number 7 when David's name was put before Saul, when David became the priority. A lot of Christians are fine with Christ as long as they can still be the priority. I don't mind having Jesus as an accessory. I mean, he's a pretty good accessory. He saved me from my sins. And you could hear Saul, David's a pretty good accessory. Why? Look at what he did to Goliath. And if you continue reading the story, every time Saul sent David out, he came back victorious. That's a pretty good accessory. Oh, but as soon as David starts becoming the priority, well, that's just asking too much. And in modern day Christianity today, asking people to make Jesus not just an accessory, but saying, listen, Jesus ought not be an accessory in your life. Jesus ought to be your life. In other words, Jesus shouldn't have to schedule around you, you should have to schedule around Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make him number one. Oh, and then all these things shall be added unto you. If you don't lay the foundation first, it doesn't matter how beautiful you make the house, it's going to fall. The foundation has to come first. Jesus is to be our foundation. He's to be the priority. He's to be number one. Sometimes that'll cost. Sometimes that may mean staying up a little bit later when I want to go to bed because I got to get up early the next day. Sometimes it might mean getting up a little bit early on Sunday to do some volunteer work or whatever it is that needs to be done so that the same people don't have to do it over and over and scheduling around the work of Jesus. Ask yourself this question, who's number one in my life? Now for Jonathan, no price was too high. That's why we see him stripping in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse number 4, his way of saying, you're, the, you're my priority. 
Uh, my soul is knit to yours. I am bound to you. And that's not the only place we see him do it. First Samuel chapter 20 and in verse number 31. First Samuel chapter 20, verse number 31. And first Samuel chapter 20 and verse number 31. The Bible says, uh, for as long, this is uh, Saul talking to his son, Jonathan. And he's telling Jonathan, why do you love this guy so much? Don't you know he's going to cost you? And, and for once, Saul is actually speaking truth here. He says this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse number 31. As long as the son of Jesse, that's David, as long as he lives upon the ground... Thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. So Saul is saying, we need to kill David. And Jonathan, of course, whose soul is knit to David, says, why would you want to kill him? I don't want him dead. And Saul says, you do understand, as long as he lives, you'll never be king. And yet, despite that, Jonathan still was knit to David. As a matter of fact, Jonathan would end up saving David's life because Saul wanted Jonathan to go and get David. And, you know, David loved Jonathan enough that if Jonathan had gone and said, Oh, my, my dad, he's, he's sorry about everything he's done. Won't you, won't you come back? Jonathan really could have set a trap for David. And if Jonathan wanted to be king, he certainly could have done that. Now we know God would have intervened because God had already anointed David. But I'm trying to credit Jonathan here for his dedication despite knowing he's going to lose out on the kingdom because God's giving it to David. Let me ask you something. Who's king of your life? Are you willing to give up the throne? You do realize that as long as you make Jesus the priority in your life, you'll not be the king. As long as you make him number one, that means he's going to make the decisions for you. He's going to make your schedule because everything that you do, you're going to pray about. And you're going to say, Lord God, I don't want to make this decision without you. And Lord, if you don't want me to make this decision, then I won't. As long as he's the priority in your life, you'll not be the king. Oh, but you'll be better off if he's the king. Because he'll keep you from making decisions you ought not make. 1 Samuel chapter 23, um, in verse number 16. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse number 16. Talking again about Jonathan. Jonathan acknowledges here in 1 Samuel 23, verse number 16. We know at this point, and I believe he, we, he knew long before this, that he was not going to be the next king. Because it was going to be David. First Samuel chapter 23, verse number 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood, strengthened his hand in God. Must have been a great fellowship meeting. You know, here King Saul is searching for David, wanting to kill David in the middle of the night. Jonathan gets up. He has access to David. And, and again, shows you Jonathan could have entrapped him, but he chose not to because truly he was dedicated to David. So the Bible tells us here that he strengthened his hand in God and said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also Saul, my father, knoweth. He says, Dad's already told me you're going to be the king in Israel. He knows it. I know it. Which is why I'm standing by you. Because I want to be on the right side when it happens. You are the king. That is not a small thing 
that Jonathan just did. He gave up his future. He gave up what the world would say was rightly his. He was the next king in Israel. You know, many throughout history gave up their future so they could give themselves to Christ. But in giving up their temporal future, they gained an eternal future. Can't help but think about the Apostle Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul, Pharisee, sitting under the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, Not just an average Pharisee, he was a great Pharisee. He was head and shoulders above everyone else in his class. He was moving up the ladder extremely quickly to the point that they had given him authority. He's the one that uh, consented. This is how much power he had. He consented to the death of Stephen. In other words, he gave the, he gave the okay. That's the kind of power he had, the kind of authority he had. He was on his way to Damascus with paper, with paper in hands to arrest the Christians up there. He continued to wreak havoc on the church. He was climbing up the pillars of society. And yet, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he gave up that future. He traded in that future of success, that future of wealth, that future of being acknowledged by the higher-ups. He himself would become a higher-up, but he gave it all up for prisons, for beatings, for uh, internships. But what did he give it up for, really? To see thousands come to know Christ as Savior. To be acknowledged as writing more books in the New Testament than any other author. See, the thing about the Apostle Paul, had he remained Saul, we wouldn't even know who he is today. But because he became the Apostle Paul, even haters of God know who he is. And he gave up his future for a future. He gave up a temporal future. Same thing with Moses. Moses was on the path to success in a world power, but he gave that up. Again, even haters of God know who Moses is. They've made terrible movies about him. But nonetheless, he gave up his future for a future. And he lives with Jesus today. See, what I'm trying to say is you really don't give anything up. Jonathan gave up being temporal king for being an eternal king with the king of kings. Jonathan's was a gesture of submission. But as Paul would remind us, and what we give up here can't even compare to the glory which we shall receive one day. It's okay to give up the temporal. It's not very wise to give up the eternal. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. People don't fully realize that Jonathan, or what Jonathan gave up because of his love of David, but it's amazing that we can accomplish for Christ when we allow ourselves to really love him And allow ourselves to make him the king. 2 Corinthians 5.14 The love of Christ constraineth us. Paul would write that. The love of Christ moves us. It controls us. It motivates us. It empowers us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all then we're all dead. Father, I pray 
Lord God, give us understanding here. Help us to see this parallel. And Lord, enable us to make the commitment that we ought to make to you. Thank you, Father, for the commitment that you've made to us, that literally you have bound yourself to us. We are so undeserving of that. And Lord, may we, may we live as though we're grateful for what you've done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go ahead and stand and we're going to sing Only Trust Him as we sing on that first.